Hey everybody, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. I'm J.R. Jamison, the Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. I'm Andrew Sellingson, President of Campus Compact. And today we have a special guest host with us. Emily is not able to be on the show today, but in her place we have Josh Todd, who is the Executive Director of Campus Compact for Oregon. Hey everybody, I'm excited to be here. Josh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, so I've been Campus Compact of Oregon's director for about five years, uh, and we are really focused in on, um, you know, using the lens of Campus Compact around uh, civic engagement and uh, service learning, but using it through a very specific frame and really looking at it through a racial justice and equity lens. And so that's uh, the work that we do in Oregon uh, is really in support of our colleges and universities, as well as uh, K-12 partners and nonprofit partners, because we include those in our compact, um, to think about how can we transform education in ways that are equitable and supportive of all students. Um, and I just have to say, on a personal note, I'm really excited to be here, because I've always been told that I have a face for radio. Oh, no. <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you in person. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you are doing some inspiring work out your way that definitely we all can learn from in Compact Nation. What's coming up for you in your state that you're excited about? A lot. I mean, we recently, I was just published for the very first time. My uh, co-facilitator, uh, Sonali Sangeetabalaji, uh, and I just got a piece published in the Metropolitan Universities Journal, which is the journal of, the, of KUMU, the Coalition of Urban and Metropolitan Universities. Um, so really excited about that. It just came out last week. Um, and it's called Transforming Higher Education Through Organizational Meditation. Um, it's a story about our executive learning series on equity and empowerment. And we, we talk about the work that we all need to do around racial justice and equity um, as meditation, but meditation for organizations, really taking time to breathe, to have a pause, to be introspective and think about our decisions, our systems. Um, so that's really exciting. And um, because of that work, we actually, um, we've had three cohorts go through that learning series, which is a year long uh, deep dive into how to apply it in equity lens within higher education. And they all came together and said, hey, we want opportunities to um, come back together and do more work collaboratively. And so we've just this year launched to equity action teams, um, and they're um, from all over the state. We're using the the genius technology of Zoom uh, to bring people from all over our state, which for us, you know, can be uh, anywhere from a six, seven hour drive um, to focus in on two issues. One is around supporting uh, undocumented and immigrant students, and the other is on um, recruiting, retaining, and promoting faculty and staff of color. So we have two uh, groups with about, in each one, probably about 14 to 15 different institutions, uh, two-year, four-year, public, private, all coming together to kind of share their, what they know, and then um, to elevate kind of best practices and solutions that they've found um, to the whole network, not just Oregon, but, but the whole country. Exciting. When is that taking place? Uh, they happen monthly, and they're in the midst of their kind of research process right now, and then we'll be producing uh, two reports uh, on what they've found. We're calling them kind of progress reports because the work is always going, um, but those will be coming out in September. Great. Is that open to Oregon folks only, or could others the, interact with you in that way? Or 
the equity action teams themselves are only open to Oregon, but we'll be doing um, when we're kind of going into our public facing kind of data collection, we'll be asking for stories and sending out surveys or requests for best practices to all of Compact Nation. So we'll be highlighting stories from from everywhere. Awesome. And congratulations on getting published. I saw the email the other day and then I got the journal. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I look forward to it. Yeah, it was very exciting. As, as somebody who came to this work as a, a community organizer and a community partner, I've never seen myself as an academic. So it definitely was a big, it was one of those things when we were asked if we wanted to do it, uh, I was terrified, which is usually a good sign that I should do it. So uh, it was not something I ever expected. But yeah, very, very exciting. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we often play a game called Where in the World is Andrew Selickson? So I want to turn it over to Andrew to tell us where he's been and where he's going. You know, I find myself playing this same game just by myself, like, where am I right now? <laughs> yeah, think it through. Um, yeah, I, so right now I happen to be in Boston, Massachusetts, home of the intergalactic headquarters of Campus Compact. But uh, I have been a bunch of interesting places recently, and I'm going to more. So... Uh, a couple of weeks back, I spent a good chunk of the week in Michigan, uh, did a civic action planning workshop with folks from uh, member campuses in Michigan at Michigan Campus Compact, and uh, was also at the meeting of the Research University Civic Engagement Network at Michigan State University. We host that network, and uh, Michigan State hosted this meeting, and it, they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of their Civic Engagement Center. Uh, we got to learn about some great work going on at Michigan State University. Um, they are doing some really exciting uh, race dialogue work based in the intergroup dialogue model that was created at the University of Michigan. But at Michigan State, they're actually doing it um, as a higher ed K-12 partnership project involving college students uh, kind of training and helping to facilitate dialogues with K-12 students. So in public schools in Lansing, they're working with students on these race dialogues that, again, have a long history at Michigan and a lot of evidence uh, of their success in really transforming people's understandings of each other and building greater, uh, you know, both empathy across difference and also solidarity across difference. Um, and they're doing this with K-12 students, which I think is really both courageous and from the reports, really powerful. Um, and we heard about other other really good work going on at Michigan State as well. Some work focused on uh, faculty and staff at Michigan State working in partnership with communities in Flint, addressing the water crisis there and kind of uh, rebuilding confidence in public uh, systems, as well as trying to change the degree to which the voice of citizens is taken seriously. Uh, in decision making. Obviously, that was a crucial part of how everything went wrong in the water system there. Um, so they really, really interesting uh, engagement there. I was just at the end of last week in Ohio at Denison University for a meeting of a group of presidents uh, brought together by the Kettering Foundation. That's really a project about kind of helping presidents reclaim their public voice as as leaders uh, and advocates and um, one of the things we learned about was um, I, I'd heard about this before, but I got to hear more about it. The project I think many people are beginning to hear about called Better Angels, which involves uh, ver very structured dialogues between uh, supporters of Trump and 
essentially Republican supporters of Trump and Democratic supporters of Hillary Clinton. These started right after the election last year. Um, Bill Doherty at the University of Minnesota helped to kind of build the, the dialogue framework that they use. And we actually heard from two participants in one of the very early dialogues, uh, these guys named Greg and Kuyar, who uh, happened to sit next to each other at the first one, one a Democrat, one a Republican, um, one a, a kind of um, lifelong Ohio resident, uh, the other an immigrant from Iran who now lives in Ohio, uh, who began very deeply suspicious of each other and had a very interesting story about the ways have not come to agree about, I think, virtually anything, but certainly not most things, but the way in which uh, they have come to see each other very differently through this process. And they're now trained as moderators. So I think there's some great opportunities for uh, colleges and universities to engage with some of these processes. Um, but that was certainly a fascinating thing to learn about. And I will be off to Virginia uh, later this week, Fredericksburg, Virginia, Mary Washington University for another civic action planning workshop, and then out to Missouri for our kind of reorganized Missouri Campus Compact, now hosted at the University of Missouri, is having an event. So I will be uh, in Columbia and really looking forward to meeting with folks in Missouri when I do that. Perfect. And next month you'll be in Indianapolis. That is a fact. For the Campus Compact National Conference, uh, we so the good news for us, the bad news for some folks out there is uh, that conference is essentially sold out. So we were really excited by the response. Uh, I think we'll be looking for an even bigger venue next time around. Um, but we have, I think, a really great lineup of sessions and um, opportunities at the conference and Apparently, people were excited about it, so we're, we're kind of full up. The President's Summit, there's still space there, so if you are or know a president who should be part of the conversations in Indianapolis about the public role of higher education, there is still an opportunity to get connected with that. Um, and, uh, yeah, really looking forward to that meeting. Again, a big focus on some of these dialogue models that have just uh, emerged as quite important, I think, for people on lots of campuses wanting to learn more uh, see some of these in practice. Um, Bill Doherty, in fact, who I was just mentioning, uh, will be part of a plenary panel uh, on uh, kind of different approaches to sort of structured dialogues across difference. And then lots of other things happening uh, at the conference as well. Uh, some of the work uh, that's going on in other places that Josh sort of mentioned, the focus on equity uh, and racial justice, there'll be uh, sort of significant representation of that kind of work, work on engaging students in electoral politics, Lots of service learning uh, work on all different kinds of issues represented. So uh, looking forward to that meeting. Yeah, we're excited to have you all here in, in Indianapolis. Also, speaking of dialogue, we'll be doing a live recording of the podcast. So for our listeners who are interested in seeing that, you can see the podcast live and in person. That's cool. Yeah. So... This episode, Andrew, you had an opportunity to sit down with Paul Markham from Sova Solutions. Tell us a little bit about Paul. So, you know, we were interested in talking to Paul because we thought that our listeners would be interested in some thinking about the relationship between civic learning and development and the kind of civic role of the campus and workforce development, partly because we just hear so much about the importance of 
workforce development to so many institutions. Two-year institutions have a particular focus on it, maybe shows up in different ways in, um, in various types of institutions. But across higher education, the question of how you develop students uh, to participate effectively in the economy, how you contribute to regional economies in doing that, that's on the table. Paul is somebody we thought would be great to talk to because he has deep experience kind of across these issues. He was, um, Paul is a sociologist. He held both faculty roles and roles in leading uh, civic engagement work, both at Western Kentucky University and at the University of Washington Bothell. He was then a program officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and served in senior leadership roles at Achieving the Dream and at Public Agenda before with a partner, a uh, business partner named Allison Cadillac, he launched Silva Solutions. So he and Allison have been working together in various settings on this work of, of helping institutions think about workforce development, but for both of them, you know, with a kind of deep focus on public good uh, and on civic learning and civic development and the public role of of higher education institutions. So we thought he was a, a perfect person to talk to about those issues and uh, look forward to your, your listening to that interview. Sounds good. Let's go to that interview now. Paul Markham, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. So I want to start out by just kind of identifying what the subject matter of our conversation is. I was thinking about there's a Raymond Carver story called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. And maybe we can frame a related question about workforce development. So wh what are we talking about when colleges and universities are talking about workforce development? What are the kinds of questions on the table? What are the kinds of problems they're trying to solve? Yeah, so... So we'll probably be circling around this issue through the length of the conversation because what we mean by it is that is this notion that when students and we know um, somewhere around 85% of, of middle school students uh, say, hey, I want a college degree, college and and as that um, as they move on from middle school through high school and then, you know, they just sort of drop like flies. Uh, based on their socioeconomic status, but at the end of the day, what that is that trajectory is really about is uh, a career, a job, and a way to support themselves, their families, and and in, there's a sense in which that is just logical and it's almost common sense. You know, you go to college, you you learn, you have a, you gain a higher education, and uh, to find your place uh, not just in the workforce but in society, right? And, and so, uh, so, but, but one of the reasons why I say we'll probably circle back and forth in and out of this issue is that uh, that's not as cut and dried in higher education circles as you might imagine. It's, there's still plenty of, of um, thoughts about uh, the purposes of higher education, um, of course, not being uh, merely about your salary or merely about a job, but about your preparation for life for citizenship and 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 so for from from my perspective and at Allison Cadillac my, my partner with Sova our perspective is that those two are not mutually exclusive I mean we're you know we when you have people that are prepared for the workforce 
um, that doesn't exclude opportunities through higher education for them, uh, uh, for opportunities for them to learn how to be public problem solvers, uh, strong uh, sort of civic minded people uh, in, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And so, so in short, it's uh, the issue is uh, how do you get people not only to higher education, but through higher education to a career. So when, when colleges and universities, you know, bring you in to, to work with them or generally are approaching this issue, what are the sorts of solutions or approaches kind of what's a, a you know, a, a range a menu of the kinds of changes that institutions might make to, to make themselves more effective in this area to help support, as you were saying, students, not only getting in the front door, but succeeding throughout and being prepared to take uh, a productive place in the economy. Yeah, so uh, so this is, I mean, uh, the work that SOVA does is we're, and I just as a real, because this is a super smart listeners to the Campus uh, <laughs> Compact podcast, uh, your, our logo is the is an owl, which is that SOVA is Czech for um, owl. And, and that is both a nod to my partner's uh, roots, uh, refugee. She's a refugee, her family to this, to this country, and, and um, uh, from uh, Czech, and she's a, a Czech um, refugee. And so the, but the uh, owl is also a symbol for this sort of deep kind of practical wisdom. And we thought of the, the word phronesis for, and like two of your listeners, <laughs> I don't know that word, but uh, that was just far too nerdy, uh, you know, so we ended up sober. And, uh, but the, the, the meaning of that is that uh, when you look at uh, the, the work that's going on, I mean, higher education, you think, and this is the smartest people in the world, literally. I mean, they're, they're educators collected, put, uh, put together on campuses and there to, to do research, to, to help students, to teach students. And, and so there's no shortage of ideas, of interventions or solutions to help students be successful. There's just, we're just um, ripe with all kinds of ways to help students. But the work falls apart almost always around the human implementation side of things. So, uh, so we, there's, you know, ideas, solutions emerge, and then campus is set off to help to, 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 to um, uh, put things in place that are going to help the students. And for one reason or the other, it'll, it'll, and at best, sometimes, you know, it's either, it can be like a boutique kind of uh, solution where it helps a handful of students. And we hear the same thing over and over. We want to help all of our students. You know, we want to, we want to be able to scale this. And so what we do is, is sort of, first of all, step in and say, well, where, you know, what is, what do you want to accomplish? And, and, you know, we want to make sure that we have an understanding across the board from leader, literally from the leadership of, across the leadership of a, of a campus, both the college president or university president, uh, down to the essential faculty uh, support staff there. You know, what, do, what are you really trying to accomplish? And, and if, in fact, you know, after those initial conversations, if it is truly student success, I mean, you know, increasing opportunities for students to be successful, get through their programs and into, into jobs, then we look at what kinds of, you know, I'm using my scare quote fingers here, what kind of pathways they have in place to help students do that. 
because we know it's enormously confusing for students, especially first generation students who don't have the kinds of supports many of us had in college where uh, you have parents and friends and, uh, you know, uh, you're surrounded by people who have been to college, who know how to navigate the registrar's office, you know, <laughs> the bursar, you know, this is all that, you know, these kinds of things that are enormously confusing. Once you if you just step on a campus and you're just have this menu of courses in front of you, you don't know where to go. So uh, we help institutions figure out how to create the most clear, supportive path for their students. And that's both on the curricular side and the student support side. And I could say a lot more about what we do, but at the end of the day, uh, and I think this is important for your listeners, is that Alice and I both are deeply rooted in, in the sort of civic engagement world. Her as a democratic theorist and uh, from the world of deliberative democracy and me from community organizing. So we, I mean, directly use those principles in our work uh, to in, increase the in levels of engagement, the quality of engagement on campuses. So people, we call it uh, bottom up and middle out engagement. So the people most directly affected by the work, the staff, the faculty, and the students have a strong voice in the reform that's taking place. So when you talk about pathways, one, one critique that I've heard from some faculty members, for example, who've been on campuses where people have begun a conversation about, as you were describing, laying out these much clearer pathways for students some faculty see that as narrowing the choices and the opportunities available to students. And there's often a, a class critique that goes along with that, that if you are a student who has the opportunity to attend an elite college or university, nobody's talking about narrowing those choices. They're actually proliferating those choices. Mm -hmm. But if you're a student heading to a community college, a regional comprehensive public university, the, there's an active conversation going on about, you know, as they perceive it, limiting the choices available to you in order to kind of simplify, but, but in doing that, you lose the richness of opportunity to pursue the things that are most meaningful to you, that are most motivating to you. How, how would you have us look at that set of questions? Yeah, that's wonderful. And this is, this is, uh, uh, this touches on my initial comment about how we would kind of circle in and, in and out of the uh, perceptions of sort of quote workforce readiness or development and, and especially in regards to pathways. So we, so I, Alice and I both have a strong point of view on this. The, um, um, so there's, and, we, and by the way, we t totally hear uh, this a lot. Uh, when we're out in the field, we hear it daily. And we have had just countless interviews because our work is based in strong listening, uh, focus groups, interviews is the base, uh, the basis of everything we do. We listen well before we suggest anything. And so we hear this a lot and, and, and understand it. And so, but the thing that, uh, that we want to make sure that folks understand is that there is a lot of space between uh, this uh, you know, just wandering about, you know, as you know, a student comes to uh, an institution and it's just a completely open kind of uh, exploration experience where they find themselves, they discover their own agency because they have, you know, 30,000 courses or, you know, there's exaggeration, but many, sometimes thousands, literally, 
depending on the campus, of courses to choose from, from they find their way in that and, and they develop their own sense of place and uh, explore, find their way. And the notion that you are, are tracked, you know, in sort of uh, various European models where, you, you know, you're, you're brought in and you're going to be a blacksmith or haberdasher you know, or something. And there's just so much space between that because the reality of what really happens on campuses, and this is true both at the, the regional comprehensive, at the ASCU schools, the regional comprehensives and the community colleges. Um, uh, we, they're just, we have not met yet after hundreds and literally thousands of conversations with faculty of, at, let's say community colleges of uh, even CTE, even uh, career and technical education faculty that would tell us, yes, I have welding students and what I want them to know when they leave is how to touch this welding rod to this metal. I mean, you know, they, they all talk about uh, uh, helping their students understand how to think critically, uh, problem solve, see their place in, in a wider world. So when, you know, if they're a welder for the rest of their lives, then that's fine. If they want to sort of come back for another uh, sort of another level of higher education experience, if they want to move into something else, then they're cultivating their students as human as holistic human beings to understand them. And uh, one of the things that I think is a is a real danger to the student success work that certainly we're we, you know we get up every morning thinking about is that uh, is is overshooting this notion that if we invest in and pathways in our institution that we're we're uh, we're restricting student choice too much. I think you know there's there's a ton of research on choice and how you can be paralyzed you know uh, by too many choices. We we also know from Ivy League schools and I, I I for a point in my career I taught in an honors college. They had pathways in honors college. They were. Uh, and what I mean by that, we didn't use that term, but students were given freedom to choose what they wanted to do. Once they decided what that was, they had a very detailed schedule and plan, blocked courses. They had student supports around them uh, uh, from every angle to, uh, to help them not only identify that path and, and get funding to have all kinds of other experiences as they were learning both extracurricular and in the classroom, but uh, stay on that path and complete. And that was an honor to college. And for those folks that are, have Ivy League educations, you have we have the same types of systems there, where their their students are tutored and and have lots of supports. And and pathways is just about giving every student that opportunity for those those comprehensive supports and clean through line through their curriculum to what to where they want to be. Let's return to, you know, you made the point right right at the outset that you don't see a, a contradiction between workforce preparation and preparation for civic participation. And I wonder if we could just dig a little bit uh, more deeply into that, because I think, you know, sometimes uh, there is just an assumption made that those are two very different ways of looking at a college education, that either we are preparing you to you know, engage as a citizen, to think about a whole range of issues, to explore uh, the kinds of questions that emerge as public policy questions across fields, et cetera, or we are preparing you narrowly to fulfill a role in the economy as it is, and we're kind of stamping out cogs for a vast machine. Yeah. And I'm wondering, so from your perspective, 
Uh, what, what's wrong with that picture and, and how should we really think about this relationship? Yeah, I just really um, would ask of all my higher ed colleagues, regardless of where, uh, where they find themselves in, in the structure, you know, if you're a faculty member or a, a staff of any sort uh, or administration, to push back against that kind of dichotomy, bifurcation of the, of the work. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's not necessary. Now, what, now, now it's not, the, the perception of it is not unfounded, to be sure, because especially in a, where we have a proliferation of very short-term kinds of certificates and, and things. Now, there is, any criticism of, of, uh, of that is, is, I mean, I can understand it. I see where it's coming from, because some of those are very, uh, short programs and you know where they're getting a, a technical skill like we even see in community colleges students come in and again they're they're there to try to find a job to support themselves and family and once they have that first six or nine courses or whatever and and get this particular skill drafting or something under the belt sometimes they will they'll leave the the, or the institution because they can get a job with that particular set of skills and so so then cert certification programs become customized to that sort of very quick hit. But, but the reality is that the vast majority of those campuses, the community colleges especially provide those, are also providing opportunities for students to see the big picture. I mean, it's not just come get a very narrow, uh, you know, very narrow experience with the certification program, but, but, but it's like Maslow's hierarchy. I mean, we, we hear you, student. We know that you're here because you've got to either fill this gap your job is saying like if you don't get gain this skill you're going to be laid off or something like that so so they're doing that but they're also casting a, a wider vision for their their overall education ways that continuing education can can help them and again i just really want to stress that um that you know after hundreds of conversations with faculty across the country we've not found one yet uh, one faculty member yet who doesn't talk about the holistic needs of their students and their desire to see their students um, understand their place in the world and i would say uh, it shouldn't be any surprise but in, that's been more acute in this last year and in our time out in the field where there's a sense that uh, democracy is 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 being challenged in various ways at this point and there's real concern and and we see faculty and staff across the country stepping up to that so I think it can become, uh, I mean, that can become even a deeper conviction that we've actually bringing these two areas together. One of my favorite uh, frameworks for uh, the way we think about career preparation is citizen professional. I mean, where we're, we're preparing students to do things in the world, jobs, but, but there's this, these sets of experiences that are helping them become and, and that framework, you know, citizen workers, citizen professionals, and and uh, and that's that's a skill set that's required to just be a, a you know a successful human being and, and a member of society. So we do not we strongly disagree that there is a uh, needs to be. We're not saying there's not because there is in fact a dichotomy, uh, but we believe that's a false dichotomy. And so, if you were, you know, I think many of our listeners are people who, in their daily lives find themselves sometimes, you know, feeling like they're kind of on the back foot in a context where uh, the workforce vocabulary, discourse, et cetera, is, is dominant. 
and they're trying to make the case for investments in civic education, in uh, viewing the student in this more holistic way. What advice might you give them for, you know, kind of changing the conversation with folks who are, who are thinking uh, about workforce issues kind of when they wake up in the morning? So is the question, so I want to make sure, because I think this is a super important one. The, uh, is the question how, how people that are interested in or, or invested in the civic engagement connect the dots between that and the workforce practically? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a great way to put it. In other words, yeah, it's like you, you might wish as a person who directs a civic engagement center or a faculty member, you know, engaged in civic teaching and learning, you might wish that we could just have a conversation that starts with how do we educate students for citizenship, but yeah. that's not really the conversation you're in. So yeah. if you want to be an effective advocate in the real context you're in, how, how might you help them do that? Okay, so I know a lot of your listeners are going to be exactly those people. I mean, they're running engagement centers that are civically, uh, you, know, you know, faculty members doing community-based research and all that. And I, just as a nod, uh, like I've ran several of those centers on campuses, uh, centers for community engagement, for civic engagement, social responsibility, um, community-based learning. So I just completely um, empathize with the, the questions you're asking and the folks that are listening that are challenged with that. And it's such a good question. And it is one that has uh, eaten me for a long time because you, we, we should be able to live. We sh you know, our society should, should be uh, interested and um, invested enough in the health of our democracy to, for us to be able to just come at these issues just on, on the face value. We need strong citizens. We need uh, civically engaged graduates of our institution. So therefore, here's what we're doing to do that. Now, uh, now and sometimes you can do that, and sometimes it gets buried um, in all the different priorities that administrations have to deal with. And the problem that I've experienced when I was in these roles is, is you know, engage, civic engagement is like, you know, it's sweetness in life. I mean, I just, you, won't, you will rarely find anyone who will say, I'm not, you know, I don't think we should be doing that, you know, or whatever. So, so it, it's such a, it's, uh, I wrote something years ago, I, I think for the Huffington Post that I, it was, a, it was about, you know, every, every president that I would work with would say, that's good stuff. And I would go, oh no, you know, it's terrible. <laughs> We're already headed down the road if they say that's good stuff, because then they, it gets denied, it gets, um, it gets basic support but it doesn't rise to the priority that, that it should, uh, you know, for, for the folks having to do that work on campuses. So my, uh, my thoughts on this, and just, and this is kind of the direction my, my career has moved, is that when I stepped back and I looked at what we were trying to achieve in all those different centers that I was responsible for, um, at the end of the day, it was, uh, in some way, it was a pretty explicit um, thread of social and economic mobility. I mean, that was that that was uh, something that was a deep value of all the different engagement centers that I ran. And so, over the course of time, I had to come to this place where I said, "Well, if it's about social and economic mobility, how um, how do I shoot directly for that 
target. And so for, for us, I mean, this is what SOVA is. In fact, I mean, I, I can only say, you know, it's funny saying this, knowing this is going to be posted on the internet, but it's like, you know, I feel like I'm having kind of a, you know, over a coffee shop table conversation with the listeners, with compact people who I believe in is, um, uh, what SOVA is, I mean, it's in, in its essence, a civic engagement uh, organization, because we, we had to learn how to take the deep principles that are taught in these centers and, and apply it directly to the problems that legislators are concerned about, that uh, campus presidents and provosts are concerned about, you know, sort of these things that rise to the surface, like completion rates, retention. And we have just disciplined ourselves to say, okay, like, it's not a, it's not a choice where it's like, we're going to now be concerned about student retention. So therefore we're going to abandon our, our civic mission, but rather how do we use this, the skills, the tools, which are many, by the way, because don't, your listeners shouldn't, if, if listeners, if, if some of your listeners, which I know they are, are running centers like this, you've already have a lot under success on your belt because you have a position, you have a budget, you likely have a small, but you have a staff, you have a space that alone on a campus is an enormous success. So you've got a lot to leverage. And so we just shifted from and encouraged others to think about how you're using the essence, sort of the, the animus of your work to directly address the problems that are the concerns of your organization and your community. And that is subtle, but different from coming at it first as a civic, as civic engagement through something else. It is coming to it as solving the problem by using the tools of civic engagement. That sounds subtle, but it has made an enormous difference for, for lots of us and, and Alice and I included. And when you do that, so if we can sort of um, kind of, move forward in the story you're telling about the approach that you encourage institutions to take a kind of an approach grounded in these civic skills for addressing these workforce challenges and presumably other issues. What, what do you see with institutions you've worked with over time? How, how does that change the institution? What is, what is the impact of engaging in that way in problem solving as opposed to, for example, very hierarchical, systems of command and control that sometimes is the way university administrations look? Yeah, that's a great question. Great question. So, so, um, so this is so one of the ironies of the, and this, I remember I was at, um, this would have been when I was at the University of Washington. So I was, I was on the Bothell campus at the University of Washington running a center for community-based learning. And, and so, you know, I, after years of all, I've, I've been responsible for other centers, I suddenly realized, you know, it's like I had been spent all of my career sort of um, uh, doing work, you know, gathering students and then taking them outside of the campus to do work that was for all the right reasons. I mean, service learning, experiential learning, uh, impact in the community, all that was like, uh, I'm completely down with that and no, no issues with it. But it was there, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, the campus itself is a community. And these skill sets like listening. I mean, I, I, I don't want to make this seem too simple, but it's like just engaging the right stakeholders at the right times and understanding their self-interest um, was a way to 
really transform internal campus conversations that were about uh, issues of, of recognized importance, you know, like student success. I mean, uh, when I was at Western Kentucky University, there was, um, uh, we, I, I taught a course called problem, Public Problem Solving, where students were taught to uh, identify, um, you know, for, listen, recognize a problem in, in, in their community, and, and then help the, state, help the folks in the community identify the key stakeholders and map out processes. And uh, there's a common organizing tools for your listeners that are organizers. I mean, you're power mapping um, and then creating kind of an engagement plan to get to a solution that was in the self-interest of the key stakeholders. And so, you know, I thought that thing is something that was done off of, in, in communities. Well, there was an, an, an issue that happened on campus that was a, a big, I mean, it was a serious issue around the curriculum and space. And my students did those things. They mapped. They had one-to-ones. They listened. They engaged administration, other students, faculty, and solved that problem. And, and it was uh, enormous. So, so the skills that are just really inherent to your, the, the campus compact leaders on the campuses, those skills are in dire need in the context of the campus itself uh, because higher education is not necessarily given to, you know, I mentioned earlier, Allison and I talked about bottom up and middle out change. That's not the usual approach in higher education. So there's enormous skill sets within your sort of the, the entities on campus that focus on civic engagement that's usually directed outside the campus that can be directed internally. You know, it's, it's interesting for me hearing you talk about this because the language that you use resonates, I think, very deeply with directions that we at the Compact have been going as we've been working with campuses on building their campus civic action plans. Mm-hmm. We've often been framing this as an organizing task that's about kind of building uh, solidarity and support in just the ways you're talking about engaging people through their interests to envision a different kind of campus and our work with the Newman Civic Fellows is you know very much framed in the language of, of building public problem solvers and uh, encouraging them to be organizers and leaders on their campuses and bringing others to the table. Mm-hmm. What, what sorts of challenges do you see folks encountering as they seek to undertake this work, like on the ground in institutions, what do you see as kind of the the things for people to be aware of if they envision their role as trying to build that kind of uh, community engaged support for change on their campuses? Yeah, uh, there's a couple. Uh, One is just the simple uh, competing competition between interests. So um, it, it, it's, uh, it, it sometimes uh, when you have, for listeners to this, uh, of this podcast, when, you know, you, you are, you have three envisions and I mean that in the, in the best way. It's like a, of, of sort of engaged campuses, uh, respectful, you know, respect, you know, across all the, you know, all the stakeholders on the campus and all the groups and all that. And sometimes it can be discouraging to, um, you know, you just wake up and you've, and you're 
in, in your mind, you have a sort of idealized way of the way thing, you know, you, the way you want things to be and you know they should be. But you're doing something like, um, you know, focused, I don't know, on, on, a, on a course or on a sidewalk that's being put through the camp. I mean, you know, something that seems so um, small that it's easy to lose heart. And um, so one of the things that we encourage is that, is, is to pay attention to those things that seem small because they're usually powerful levers. For like, for example, there's one of the things that I used to teach my students is, to, is how to look for these small opportunities that you organize around. Uh, creation of a playground in a community is a great example. I, I was uh, help students organize an after uh, or a, not after school but an early learning program in a community uh, school in partnership with a church. And it was, it was very, very small, but what it became is a, is a leverage point to involve a wider group of people around core skills that would then translate to the next issue. And so then when the next thing comes, the next sidewalk that there's a trouble with or something, then there's the civic muscle that's built. And so it's hard sometimes to see the bigger picture when you're, you want things to be right, you know, and whole, <laughs> but, uh, but you're, seem to be debating a, a you know with a small issue so just seeing the big picture is one and, and it takes a lot of perseverance on the part of your of the, the, sort of the civic engagement folks on campus to keep that in mind the other is 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 my is to is to understand that there's a difference between public problem solving and protest so i've seen a load of efforts derailed again by all the right sentiment when, uh, when this sort of this civic engagement community on a campus comes together, but the manifestation of the coming together is protest. Because it's, oftentimes there's collateral damage in that that breaks the relationships, the key power relationships that you need to create real change. And so again, that's tough and it requires really big picture thinking and this constant checking of yourself and with your peers about like where is the line between holding true to your values and sort of selling out in some ways and none of this is cut and dry but it's but the civic engagement has always been more of an art form than a science and so it's uh it's an essential kind of art uh in this way so so keeping your eye on the big picture and leveraging small things for big gains is one, and then two, being very careful when you sort of push the button on protest. I'm not saying never protest. I'm just saying like protest as default response is, uh, I believe, dangerous. So I know from talking to you in other contexts that, uh, that you grew up in rural Kentucky that yeah. you ended up pursuing a, a doctoral degree in the UK that you've now worked, you know, for the Gates Foundation. You work now with many of the major higher education organizations. And I'm wondering, uh, can you contextualize the work that you're doing in, in the context of your own life? Just what are, what are the, the sort of connection points uh, of who you are to this work that you're doing? Oh, geez. That's a great question that I, that I promise I could go on way longer, but I, I won't. Um, and I, I can actually make it pretty simple. There's, there's the key things that happened in my life was, uh, yes, you're exactly right, Andrew. Grew, grew up, uh, uh, you know, fourth generation dairy farmer in Kentucky, the, the, the working class, uh, rural Kentucky. Um, 
which seems like a kind of prison when you're young, but is the greatest blessing you could imagine, you know, now that I'm older. Uh, in that context, everything is raw material. Uh, you know, we, you create things, you solve problems by creating your own solutions to problems. You know, you, you grow the food that the cattle eat that pays the bills, you know, this kinds of things. So it's this deep connections. And so my foundation, I think, is uh, from being from the working class, uh, rural working class is a great benefit, first of all. But then uh, there's that. And then being the other thing is uh, sort of experience. I was, I was trained by the IF uh, as an organizer when I was on an assignment at Vanderbilt University. And I had no idea that would make such a difference in my life because it was that experience that helped me understand that, that, uh, you know, cause there was a time when I was like, after that training and after that experience at Bandy, I was like, well, am I going to, am I going to be an organizer? I'm going to be an academic. I mean, what am I going to be? And, and I, and it was actually a, a mentor, a, a Harry Boyd, who many, a, many of your listeners will know who said, well, you know, that's the wrong kind of way to think about it. You should, you should just be an organizer wherever you are. And so I just, uh, just full speed head on dug deeply into the ex experiences of organizing the tools, the principles, uh, you know, what, you know, what are the, uh, what are the qualities of very successful organizers? And then I just said, I'm going to do that uh, <laughs> wherever, wherever I am. And I knew by that point too, that it was going to be education because I see that as the greatest lever for social and economic mobility and, and, and sort of sustainable change in our country uh, is through education. And so I just, and I've had lots and lots of jobs uh, in higher ed and, but I can say uh, with great confidence and you could, and I, and it's funny if you could even go talk to the, you know, those people I reported to over the years, <laughs> they would probably say, well, we hired him to do, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. You know, we hired him to do X, but he kind of, he did X kind of, but he really did Y. And, and that, you know, whether they would use the language of organizing or not, I don't know, but, but that's what I was doing. I'm really trying to help different people, different groups, uh, see and understand their own self-interest and their shared self-interest. And in designing real ways, concrete steps to move that agenda forward to some kind of solution that was good for students at the end of the day, good for students and communities. And so um, it just sounds like it can't be, you know, when, if you look at the stretch of my career from dairy farming to the Gates Foundation to the other things I've done, but it is true. I really encourage folks. It's, it's true. I mean, if you find that kernel skill or that kernel thing you want to be, in my case, it was a, a community organizer, then, then make that work for you. And no matter what your job is, and if you're super clever, figure out how to have the jobs that give you uh, power to create the change you want to see in the world. And then just, you know, be who you are in those jobs. Well, Paul, that is, uh, I think, a great note to end on. Some valuable advice that I think, uh, yeah, we can all take home. So thank you so much uh, for you. talking to us on the Compact Nation podcast. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks, Andrew, for that great interview with Paul. It was definitely insightful. Josh, what were your thoughts? So... Uh, 
I have to admit, I, I was going back and I'm starting to see themes between a lot of the different episodes of the podcast. I'm, I'm trying to channel Yvette Nicole Brown from, from Walking Dead and Talking Dead. She's the super fan that like has journals and writes about every single episode and kind of like kind of unpack them. I mean, a piece for me that stood out the, the most and really connects with the work that we do is this concept of kind of starting small and looking for lever points and using those lever points as ways. I think he, he talked about building the muscle mm-hmm. um, to be able to, to really create the change that, that folks are wanting to make. And it's, it's interesting because I think in the uh, podcast a few, few episodes ago with Stephen Black from the University of Alabama, he talked a lot about the same thing around, you know, we kind of do a disservice to students and to faculty and staff if we talk about civic engagement as this like easy thing, right? That we're gonna, it's gonna be, you know, fun and we're just gonna like engage you in this like little way um, when really real life problems, in this case, in this episode, workforce development, you know, are complicated and complex and nuanced. And so I think even Stephen Black was saying, you know, we need to start small and grow. Um, and and so I was just really struck by that and struck by thinking, um, what are the ways in which in everything that we're doing, you know, whether it's the kind of career technical education um, or, you know, research one universities, like how in all engagements are we kind of building in um, the the skills necessary for people to to be uh, engaged in democracy, to be engaged in community. Um, that was what I was really sitting with a lot was thinking through, you know, what would it mean for us? Cause he, you know, he talked a lot about, he didn't, you know, he's never in his thousands of interviews met a, a faculty who said, you know, my, my goal in life is to teach, you know, as a welding instructor, teach a student how to put this welding rod to a piece of metal. It was always kind of deeper, uh, bigger, how do we, you know, help people kind of find their true path and how do we allow them to um, kind of be, um, I think the word that that he used were citizen professionals. Um, and that to me was really interesting to, to unpack and for us as Compact Nation to really be thinking about, yeah, what does this mean and how does it look like um, to be doing civic engagement, to be engaging folks uh, in community regardless of where they're at. You know, I think there's been a lot of conversation around how we do this uh, at the community college level. How do we do this in kind of technical training um, and really kind of expanding our our concept of the role of higher education and how um, we can really be teaching uh, the skills of civic engagement, um, I thought was really fascinating. So I just, I was sitting with that a lot and, and thinking a lot about what we do here in Oregon around um, equity work is the same thing. You know, we use a lot of living systems metaphors. So we talk about the institution as a body and we talk about muscles and what it takes to build muscle and how, you know, you can't kind of lift the, the hundred pound weight um, on your first time out to the gym. Uh, and so that concept of kind of where are the lever points and how do we kind of build slowly and grow our, our civic muscle, I thought was really fascinating. I agree with you. Those were the items that stuck with me as well. The whole idea of building civic muscle and citizen professional. It also made me think about even though we start small, we can go deep over time. And what that deep experience creates are some of these, I guess, for lack of better words, soft skills that are so needed in society. Paul spoke of these skills as we have a dire need in society for these, such as listening, understanding stakeholders, um, student success. 
And these are some items that uh, create dialogue in a community and can create democratic dialogue that in some ways we're seeing a gap uh, in current communities around this. And so that stuck with me as well that um, yes, we start small, we build the civic muscle, but we have the opportunities to go deep to create some of these soft skills within our students. Yeah, for me, one of the things that just really stands out in the way Paul approaches this work and just what it got me thinking about was just how much we need to improve our nimbleness at thinking of two things at once, thinking about civic development and thinking about professional development. And one of the things that that I thought of uh, as I was reflecting on the conversation was, so, you know, many people in academia get very upset when we start talking about workforce development, et cetera. They think it's a kind of impingement on the purity of academic inquiry and, you know, that we should be teaching students uh, in some way that's uh, kind of screened out from professional concerns first. But at the same time, we find it perfectly reasonable for faculty members to say, well, I can't focus on this civic work until I get tenure, right? It won't contribute to my professional advancement. So I have to put it to one side. And, you know, that seems to me crazy. We shouldn't be asking anybody to pursue sort of these dimensions of their life in ways that are completely dissociated from each other. We should be creating space for faculty members to pursue their scholarship and their teaching in ways that advance the public good, and we should be crediting them for that. But also, we should find it as completely reasonable that students would want to prepare themselves both for participation in the economy, to be able to support their families, support their communities, and to enact their role as citizens. And there's no particular reason there's a contrast between those. For many people, their professional role has a civic dimension. I think we'd want everybody to undertake their professional role in a way that's at least cognizant of the public good and of ethical considerations. And uh, and I just think we have to stop imagining there's some sharp line between those things. Mm-hmm. I'd love to... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Josh. (laughs) Well, I just I was the other thing I was struck by was him, you know, talking about this false binary. Right. And I thought that was really uh, important to dig into, because I think so often we are trained or socialized to think in terms of either or black and white. Yes and no. Um, And I liked that he said, you know, there really isn't. We believe it's a false dichotomy to say it's it's workforce or um, or education kind of uh, civic education. So I just I really appreciated um, being able to to think about that and and think about so you know again what is the goal you know he talked about like you know helping institutions determine what's your goal and then then mapping the pathways to get there um, you know if our goal is to make sure that everyone who touches uh, some form of higher education sees their role in promoting the public good, then it shouldn't matter whether or not that's happening in a, you know, graduate level philosophy course, or if it's happening in, you know, a, a certificate program. Um, but I think we have allowed this, you know, separation to occur where it's like, well, that's workforce development. And so that's somehow a different conversation or that's community college. And so that's somehow a different goal than, you know, the the four-year private institution or the liberal arts college. And um, 
I really, I really enjoyed him kind of calling out that kind of false dichotomy and having us think about how do we do this in all the places that we engage with students, regardless of what their goal is, you know, every engagement should be an opportunity to think about what's our role in promoting the public good. As a storyteller, I would say I appreciated hearing his story as well, how he went from the dairy farm to the Gates Foundation <laughs> to founding Sova Solutions and, and such. And one thing that he said that stuck out to me that I think applies to the faculty development side of this, as well as the student piece, is make what you want to do work for you and be who you are in those jobs. And I think that's so important when we think about faculty who say, to your point, Andrew, I can't do this until I'm tenured, I'm, I must wait. Or for students who determine that they're coming to the institution because they're seeking a certification in welding, but there is an opportunity for a more holistic approach. Um, I just really appreciated that quote from him to think about our life and our work in that way. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, when I think about, I had never really thought about it in these terms, but for myself, the way I kind of, not kind of, the way I got into engagement work and, and all the things that led me kind of down the path away from being a faculty member, frankly, is, you know, that my, that I didn't have a way to integrate my civic commitments, which were actually the reason I was interested in studying political science in the first place. I just didn't find ways uh, to to integrate those parts of my life unless I started teaching in a very different way. And once I started teaching in a very different way, then I found that I was interested in pursuing that strand of the work and and other parts of what it, the faculty role is were interesting and enjoyable to me, but they were not as compelling to me as these questions about kind of building the civic dimension more deeply into institutions. Um, and I think for most people, yeah, we don't wanna have these kind of split selves. We wanna find ways to, in the part of our life that we're gonna be spending, you know, 40 plus hours on every week, we wanna find ways for our fundamental values to show up there and not have to kind of push that off to one side. Here, here. I just, uh, I always, you know, I will say this at a personal level. I always enjoy talking to Paul and always learn from him, and um, and just the the perspective he brings with this this range of experiences. Um, you know, I feel like there's one of the things I really enjoy about my job is that it has just as a um, the way it turns out, it brings me into contact with people who have often very varied careers. Um, and you know, they may have gone very deep in one area and then they find themselves doing something. I don't know why this is true exactly, but, uh, I can think of a bunch of people like this where they, they have a career path that yeah, is in a number of sectors and there's a logic to it, but it brings together some apparently very disparate things. Um, and that, that's just something I, I just always, uh, learn a lot from talking to those folks. Agreed. So now we're going to move on to Pop Culture Corner. And since we have a guest host with us, we find that this is one of our ways that we help condition them to be a guest host on the Compact Nation podcast to challenge them to think about something happening out in the world that's more pop culture-y and connect it to the work that we do throughout Compact Nation. So, Josh, with that, do you want to start us <laughs> off? 
Well, for me, there's only one thing to talk about in pop pop culture right now, um, and that's Black Panther. So I just was able to see it uh, this past weekend. It was its opening weekend, and it's breaking all kinds of records. Um, I was in Chicago uh, visiting family and and got to see it. And just uh, to me, it was, you know, it's this fascinating, and I'll try not to do any spoilers for those who haven't seen it, um, but, you know, it's this interesting uh, story about complacency with oppression and trusting black women and, you know, the the plight or the struggle that we have seen in our culture around race and uh, white supremacy culture wrapped up in a superhero movie, right? It's just not what, what I expected. I, I did not expect them to go as, as far and as deep as they did. Um, but what was more interesting uh, to me was watching the audiences and watching the folks coming to see the movie. And, and really, you know, there's always kind of uh, cosplay and, and really super fans for, for any superhero uh, genre. But at least in this theater, in this one corner of Chicago where I was, um, it just the, the movie theater was filled with excitement and joy and relief and folks really just uh, so excited to finally um, feel seen and uh, valued in a way that um, is sometimes rare. And it just, it made me think of the work that we're doing here in Oregon, especially on recruiting and retaining and promoting faculty and staff of color. Um, and, And what does it mean really to have representation? What does it mean to have um, uh, to see and feel that you're valued, um, you know, within uh, within the institution and, and within the academy. So I just I'm I need to see it like five more times. If you haven't seen it, everybody in Compact Nation, go run to the theater. It's amazing. Uh, but yeah, it had me thinking a lot about uh, about voice and power and representation and. Uh, all kinds of ways which we um, can become complacent uh, with oppression um, when we have uh, kind of a comfortable uh, existence. So that, those are my, that's my pop culture corner. Perfect. Thank you for not giving too many spoilers because I know Andrew and I have not seen the movie yet and we both want to see it excited to do so. So I appreciate you sharing a little bit without giving too much away actually you know my pop culture is somewhat related because it's about seeing yourself as well right and having these positive images that kids and even adults can see themselves on the screen in a positive light and i've been watching the winter olympics because it's that time of year and i have to tell you that i've kind of fallen in love in a platonic way with the ice skater Adam Rippon because he is so out and proud of of who he is and as a gay man I can say that I appreciate seeing that reflection even though Adam's much younger than I am on TV Um, and some people have told Adam uh, stop being so flamboyant you need to just calm it down tone it down a little bit and he says I can't because this is who I am and if I tone myself down um, I'm doing a disservice to myself but also a disservice to all the kids out there who have no one like them uh, who they can see who they're like in their communities and so I would be doing an absolute disservice if I tried to pretend to be something that I'm not and I just really appreciated seeing an Olympian 
be so outspoken about that and not willing to back down. And that just reminds me of the work that we do every day, empowering people in their communities to have a voice and to be a part of their community in that way, to have a platform to speak about justice, to speak about what's right. And so I'm just kind of platonically in love with Adam Rippon right now. And he has really great eyebrows that I'm a little jealous of. Uh, so that's where I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love the uh, platonic eyebrow relationship. That's a very that goes deep. Uh, you know, can I say one thing? Uh, just jumping off that, and then I'll I'll move into the the uh, I'm pretending it's pop culture uh, corner. You know, there was this study um, by the economist Raj Chetty uh, at Stanford University. He's done a lot of the work um, on inequality and social mobility in the United States. Um, it kind of a series of studies about how likely you are to move up the economic ladder based on the place you're born, how likely based on colleges you go to, et cetera. And he recently had a study, and I honestly, I can't remember uh, whether I talked about this in this context or not, but about um, the likelihood that people end up as inventors, people with patents based on where they're born. And the powerful story embedded within it was that, uh, especially for uh, girls and kids of color, the probability that they will end up as people who are inventors has an enormous amount to do with where they come from and whether there are examples in the place they're from of people from those groups ending up as, uh, as, as people who are inventing things, people who are creating patents. And they focused on that because of, you know, all this em emphasis on innovation in the economy, et cetera. And it's very clear that we you know, are wasting enormous amounts of talent in this country. And a part of that is providing kind of no hope to children in various categories that they can end up in these settings. There's also, you know, issues about the quality of education we offer based on the, you know, racial group people are born into, et cetera. But even controlling for all those factors, just not providing people at the, when they're young with kind of visible evidence of uh, these kinds of achievements and pursuits by people and and being kind of public about who's doing what, it matters a lot. So anyway, I was just thinking about kind of example setting and how important that really is. It's it, sometimes people see it as merely symbolic, but it turns out it has real impact in people's lives. Mm -hmm. All right. That was like a rant that I went on, but I'm, I'm going to move into uh, my pop culture uh, corner uh, item for the day. So I, uh, I, and again, it's possible I talked about this same podcast and in an earlier season on the this podcast and i can't remember but i'm going to plug it again because the current season is amazing so it's a podcast called the uncertain hour and it's produced by uh, marketplace media the same folks who do marketplace that shows up on public radio and the the uncertain hour their sort of uh slogan is the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about and so the first season was all about welfare, uh, what it actually is, what the policies are that govern it. It's tremendous. I encourage anybody to go back and listen to it. But the current season is about regulation. And, you know, in a context where the current administration is rolling back regulations on, you know, for environmental protection, uh, in the context of civil rights, uh, in all sorts of other settings, student loan protections, financial protections, et cetera. Uh, this is kind of the context in which they're doing this, but it's just an incredibly well-reported and well-presented series. 
that gets deep into what regulation actually is, how it takes place, how regulations are created, what the fights are over them, uh, and who tends to win and why. And it digs into a whole bunch of myths about government regulation. And um, it's just, it's a really terrific piece of work. And again, it may not sound that much like popular culture, but I decided, uh, yeah, that anything that I can get through my iPhone, I will count as pop culture. So the uncertain hour, I highly recommend it. It sounds exciting. I mean, it's a podcast, right? And like you said, yeah. if it comes through your phone. And I, I would say those two things make up pop culture. All right, we've got a deal. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that concludes this episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Compact Nation podcast. Be sure to follow us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud. Share the podcast with a friend. Encourage a colleague to listen. You can rate us online. We love to get ratings. That helps boost us. Uh, you can also follow the conversations around the, the podcast on social media at hashtag compact nation pod we'll be back next time with mandy mcreynolds from principal financial global thank you everybody thank you bye-bye season two of the compact nation podcast is produced by naval Mahdi for the campus compact headquarters in boston massachusetts and it's 1100 colleges and universities around the globe all rights reserved Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag compactnationpod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.